Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Jerryland Electric Cooperative. I was sad to miss our last podcast, but glad to be back in the saddle today to talk about a very exciting topic. I'm joined by two illustrious guests. First, uh, Dave Schweitzer, who is a member of the Cherryland Board, has been for three years this coming January, and currently serving as our Senior Vice President of the Board. Uh, Dave is a Chartered Financial Analyst with Schweitzer Capital Group. Hi, Dave. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. My second guest, also from the Cherryland Board of Directors and will be on our board in three years in June, is Gabe Schneider. And Gabe is currently serving as the secretary of the Cherryland Board. He owns Northern Strategies 360, which is a, a firm that offers government relations solutions for clients locally here like Munson Healthcare and Northwestern Michigan College. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So uh, you may notice that we are missing our most illustrious regular guest, Tony Anderson. Tony is out of town. I heard he may be traveling home from a football game. Go Pack Go. Uh, And I'm sure he's elated that they won last night, but apparently couldn't make it here for the podcast today. So we'll, we'll limp along. But it works out pretty well because Gabe and Dave and I had the opportunity, the three of us, to travel to Washington, D.C. just a few weeks ago in order to talk to our legislators about uh, a few issues, one in particular that's really, really important to the electric co-ops. And this is something we do not super regularly, but but somewhat frequently. I'm in D.C. usually maybe once a year. Tony's out there a little more frequently. And occasionally our, our board members, your board members, go with us as a part of our overall grassroots advocacy program. And really, it's it's about making sure that we are in D.C. advocating for the needs of the membership that we serve. And that's um, just a kind of a really important part of who we are and what we do. So I want to um, dig into one of the big priority issues that we talked about when we were there. But before we do that, since this was the first time Gabe and Dave had had the opportunity to go with us as co-ops to D.C., I would love to just kind of hear what your impressions were, if there was anything that surprised you or that you found particularly delightful or disappointing while you were there? Yeah, no, I really appreciated the opportunity to, uh, to go out to D.C. I, in my work, uh, am out in D.C. fairly often, uh, usually with other clients, but to be there as sort of the trusted advisor, the board member representing uh, the non-paid interest for Cherryland and our members was, was really a great experience. So I really appreciated having the opportunity. And I think one of the standout pieces for me, at least, was, you know, we were out there right a couple of weeks after a lot of other national issues were, were sort of getting going out in D.C. Uh, and also uh, we were there the week that members were coming back from a, a recess period back in their districts. And I think it was it was refreshing to hear that despite all the other things that were going on in D.C., uh, there was still a lot of attention being paid to issues that were impacting the co-op. So the issues that we brought to the table and were discussing, members and their staff were really engaged in those issues and really interested in how to help solve the problems that we were facing. So I think that was refreshing. Yeah, and what did you think, Dave? Yeah, and I would agree with that. I've, I've been to D.C. a few times myself, but never walking the halls where the House of Reps and the, and the Senators are at. And it was really an eye-opener for me. But I, we sensed the same thing in that the staff – uh, really wanted to get things done, and it seemed like they were hampered by the bigger issues of the day, the headline news, but uh, the staff, people on both sides of the aisle, were pretty frustrated that things weren't getting done, and and um, that was an eye-opener for me because it seemed like they were very sincere that they were all, all ready to get something done, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't happening. I think it's a good reminder to our listeners that, you know, as much as we get frustrated with what goes on in D.C., we sort of wring our hands and say, oh, it's just the politicians again. Uh, at the end of the day, things things get done, things do get passed. And 
uh, we obviously would like to see our interest uh, passed, and I think that we have some uh, progress in that direction. But uh, I think we have to give uh, Congress a, a little bit more um, credit for, for getting things done, maybe more so than we sometimes think. Yeah, it's interesting because I sensed the same thing that you did that and I, you know, like I said, get to go out there some, somewhat frequently and, and, and meet even with the staff. And they are always so respectful of the cooperatives. I think the cooperatives really do enjoy a very strong relationship because of the fact that they know, to your point, Gabe, that we're out there. you're out there as just a volunteer board member who cares about these issues, and, and they take that really seriously. But this time in particular, I did sense more frustration with the politics of the process from the staff than I have previously, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that one of our big issues is so appallingly non-controversial and we can't get it done. And so you're sitting, and, I'm, and we're going to talk through that, but we're sitting in office with these staff who hear us and agree with us, believe that it is an issue that should be fixed, believe that there are no negative consequences to fixing it, and are still saying, I'm really sorry, but we just can't seem to get things done. And I, and I think, and, and I really sensed that from um, from the people we met with this time. So one of the big issues that we were talking about when we were in D.C. is tied to a piece of legislation we're trying to move forward called the Rural Act. And that acronym stands for Reinvigorating Underdeveloped Rural Areas and Lands Act, so Rural Act. And before we talk through what the Rural Act does, it's important that our listeners understand the co-op's tax status. Electric co-ops are what's considered a 501c12 organization. They were, and, and, and that, that designation is meant to recognize that they were built by and belong to the communities that we serve, and therefore we are tax exempt, as long as we don't receive more than 15% of our revenue from non-member income. We call that the 85-15 rule. So as long as 85% of our revenue comes from our membership, the people who receive electricity from us, in the case of Cherryland, we can continue to maintain our tax-exempt status. And his, uh, we've never really had, co-ops have never really had any threats for that tax-exempt status. And all those savings get passed right back down to the consumers we serve because we provide electricity at cost. However, something has happened. And I'd, I think I'm going to kick it over to you, Gabe, maybe to just talk through what, what the problem is that we were in, the Rural Act is trying to solve. Sure. So uh, in 2017, there was a uh, large uh, tax package that went through, tax reform that went through. They had a lot of moving parts and pieces to it. And one of those pieces was uh, a legislation that was really mainly focused at uh, larger municipalities and other uh, cities uh, across the country that were interested in attracting large businesses to their communities and uh, were often willing to provide large tax breaks or grants even to those organizations to come and locate locate there. And so what Congress did to try to rein in what some refer to as the Amazon effect when we think about where Amazon was locating a, a new headquarters and, and many uh, municipalities across the country were willing to to roll out the red carpet for them, Congress really thought that that uh, could be an opportunity for, for overreach by these municipalities to uh, to really go farther than their tax-exempt status might, might allow them. And so uh, the provision that was put into place was uh, aiming to address uh, this issue in particular, but really went uh, farther than that uh, and impacted all nonprofits, regardless of if you are a municipality or not. Uh, and 
what the provision did was uh, essentially uh, make it so that if we were, uh, as a nonprofit, to receive uh, greater than 15 percent uh, of our income in the form of a state or federal grant, uh, that would need to be counted uh, on the income side of the statement uh, as opposed to the capital side of the statement. So if we were to receive an investment uh, from the state or the federal government to build out broadband or additional wires and poles, uh, instead of it being seen as a capital investment, it would seem a, seen as an income investment uh, and potentially put us across the threshold of the 15% uh, that Rachel just mentioned. Yeah, and, and one of the kind of important things to, to make sure we really capture in that is it has to do with the classification of the grant. So ultimately, prior to the tax law, federal and municipal grants were always classified as contribution to capital. Now they're classified as income. And and that that's the the problem that puts co-ops in the position of potentially going over that 15% cap. And really an oversight. I mean, as we talked to staff on the Hill, they all agreed that we understand that this was an oversight. This was not an intended consequence of this provision. We didn't uh, put a provision in the tax bill to go after co-ops. And, and in fact, you, you mentioned Amazon. Par part of the goal there was to take an, or an organization like Amazon, and should they take a major grant to locate somewhere, to force them to have to pay taxes on that grant. That, it, it, Correct. It's that simple. And we could sit here all day and debate the right, wrong, or indifferent of that. I, I don't have a strong dog in that fight. But in trying to, to, to capture the taxes on that grant that Amazon, the for-profit entity, might take to locate mm -hmm. in a municipality, an <clears throat> unintended consequence is that a nonprofit cooperative might also um, have to pay taxes on a grant. It, and this uh, tweak that the co-ops want to do affects not just us, but, but nationwide. For example, in Florida, where you have hurricane damage and tropical storms, a co-op down there might be reluctant to take a FEMA grant if it puts them over this limit. And it could. How does it affect the average person? It may delay them getting back their electricity mm -hmm. or whatever utilities that they have because of the co-op does not want to uh, take the grant and go over the limit. Mm -hmm. And we found that I think as of, as of today, we have 260 sponsors on this bill, and it's, it crosses both aisles. Both Democrats and Republicans are all for it. Uh, however, we're running up into a timeline. It's the end of the year. Uh, Congress recesses in, in a little while. And if we can get 290 signers, they can force it to the floor, and then it's got to go through the Senate. But again, it's a, a tough hill, but... Um, they're working on it right now. So, Yeah, and I, I do want to take a minute before we – I do want to talk about kind of next steps for the act and maybe how our, our members can help support it. But before we do that, I would like to talk just in a little bit more depth about the most likely scenarios where a co-op would lose its tax-exempt okay. status. So you, you hit on one, Dave, when you were talking about FEMA, and I don't know how familiar all of our listeners are, but essentially all electric utilities can receive federal assistance for recovery after a presidentially declared – disaster. For investor-owned utilities, so for-profit entities, they use federal tax deductions and other accounting mechanisms to do that. But because electric co-ops are tax-exempt, we can't. And decades ago, in response to that, um, Congress created the Disaster Relief Fund through FEMA. It is a vehicle through which if a co-op has a presidentially declared disaster on their system, they can be 
reimbursed via federal grants for up to 75% of the cost of restoring power. We've not used FEMA dollars in Michigan. We just haven't really had any disasters of that scope. I think it would be foolish to assume we never will. We absolutely could, but we haven't. Where we've seen it used on a really regular basis, especially in the last several years, is in these more hurricane-prone areas and also wildfire-prone areas out west. There are already, uh, I think they were saying when we were in D.C., maybe six or seven co-ops that may lose their tax-exempt status in 2020 because of taking FEMA dollars in 2019. So this is already happening, and I and and to your point, Dave, should should a major disaster happen on our system, here's the scenario we would find ourselves in. We can either take this grant one restore we're going to restore power as quickly as we can, but potentially offset that cost to our membership because at the end of the day, someone still has to pay for the restoration. So we could access this federal money that's designed to do that, potentially lose tax exempt status, have to pay more in taxes the next year, <laughs> putting upward pressure on the rates of the membership we serve as a not-for-profit entity. Or we can not take the grant, then force our members to pay all of the cost of the recovery in order to avoid losing our tax exempt status. That's that's when we say it out it's loud, it's just lose, ridiculous. Lose yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I think that's part of the reason that when we were meeting with people, they were like, yeah, you're right. This is it's a no-brainer. This yeah. is just dumb. Right. <laughs> so, so we've talked a little bit about FEMA. Um, I don't know if one of you want to jump in and talk about broadband, because that's the other area where we really see a potential for a co-op to lose its tax-exempt status. Yeah, sure. So on the broadband side, uh, there certainly is opportunities that exist uh, that are up and coming uh, with regards to state or federal dollars for broadband deployment. Um, Cherryland is not involved in the... Uh, broadband business per se, uh, so much as other co-ops are, um, including some to our north and south. Uh, but there is an opportunity and potential for us to play more in this field uh, in the years to come. And uh, with this current uh, tax legislation in place, uh, our incentive to do so is, is not there, frankly, because uh, w- w- why would we apply for dollars that would then potentially put our tax-exempt status at risk? Uh, we would more likely not apply for those dollars in the first place. So it really puts uh, sort of a barrier, an artificial, frankly, barrier in place before we were even to consider Mm -hmm. applying for dollars to help to deploy broadband in our service territory. And another one that's kind of ridiculous because what we've seen is uh, a lot of interest amongst legislators to and state at the state and federal level to figure out how to uh, speed up the – pace of broadband deployment in rural areas mm-hmm. because they recognize that rural areas are, in, in some areas at least, underserved. And that really was something that came up in all of our office visits. One yes. of the first things they wanted to know was, is Cherryland doing broadband? And so it, there's a strong interest yeah. there. So they're putting all these, all these, making all these dollars available through FCC auctions. There's a big one coming up next August, a $24 billion auction to with, a ac- with a B, yes. yes, to access grant money to deploy broadband in rural areas. And then if you take it and build out broadband using your grant, your electric consumers will lose, potentially, their tax-exempt status if the grant you take is more than 15% of your revenue for that year. And this is another one that's not hypothetical. Uh, Otsego Electric Cooperative in New York took a $10 million grant through the state of New York. I I don't know if there was any federal monies or if it was just state-level monies to build out broadband in their area, that's more than 15% of their annual revenue. And as a result, they will lose their tax-exempt status in 2020 if this bill doesn't pass. 
And I think there was a, a co-op in Florida that lost because they took FEMA money too. So yeah, I there, think, I think there there's multiple, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, to go back to the uh, broadband auctions, one of the things we were talking about in D.C., while, while Cherryland's not actively working on broadband deployment right now, we do have these sister co-ops who are, and a consultant they work with is saying that Michigan could access as much as $600 million of that $24 billion auction to build out broadband in rural Michigan. And that ap- there is no question that would absolutely put some Michigan co-ops ca- tax exempt status at risk if this bill doesn't pass in 2019. So it's, it's real. It's a real threat. And again, something that everyone we sat down with said, well, no, of course we want you to do mm-hmm. broadband. Of course we want Michigan to get as much of those grants as they possibly can. We think this is a, a, a great fix. We just can't do anything about it. Yeah, that's... <laughs> But to be fair, I think they were willing to do something about it. You know, part of the math here that we're trying to work on is is strength in numbers. Because when we look at the the congressional calendar between now and the rest of the year, uh, there aren't necessarily many opportunities for floor action on every single bill that's out there. And so, as we we mentioned earlier, there's there's a couple of courses of next steps or action here. Uh, one of those is to gain 290 co-sponsors of the legislation. Uh, which would put us at a threshold that would require a vote on the House floor. So that's sort of a strength in numbers. And even if we had every member of the Michigan delegation on board, we still might not meet that 290 threshold. The other is to build momentum around uh, this particular bill so that leadership in in the House and the Senate would consider it as part of any uh, year-end package or or tax uh, extenders package or any sort of tax package that might pass. So a lot of it was uh, frustration that uh, leadership hadn't seen this as a big enough issue to potentially include or being talked about as being included in any sort of package bill. So I want to talk about both those things and, and to kind of set us up for that, I want to explain what the Rural Act does specifically. It is not doing anything to the 2017 tax bill. It is amending the tax code. It's amending the tax code specific to electric and telephone cooperatives to allow those entities to receive disaster assistance broadband grants and economic development grants without considering those grants income. It only applies to telephone and electric cooperatives. And so it fixes the unintended consequence without really touching the intended consequences of that provision of the 2017 tax bill. And so as uh, Gabe and Dave have hinted, when we were in D.C., we were really looking for, our ask was, how, how can we help build momentum? And a couple of, of, of levers to potentially pull. One is getting more co-sponsors on the bill. Um, it, was, it was great. We had a lot of very good meetings. One thing that we're really excited about is in Michigan, we now have all of our House representatives who have a co-op in their district have signed on as co-sponsors with the exception of Representative Amash. We did meet with his staff when we were there. We have sent several letters to him and continue to follow up with him. But to have everyone else who has a co-op in their district already sign on as a co-sponsor is is great. And it shows, I think, tremendous support from our Michigan delegation for the co-ops that they represent. Uh, In addition to that, while we were there, we were uh, beating down the doors of some of our Michigan legislators who don't have any co-ops in their district. What's really cool is we have, since we got back, found out that Representative Kildee, Representative Dingle, 
Representative Lawrence and Representative Slotkin have all also signed on as co-sponsors, and none of them have any co-ops in their district. And I personally think that's really amazing to see that even though they don't have co-ops in their district, they, they realize how important of an issue this is for rural Michiganders, and they're, and they're supporting our efforts. So um, certainly very grateful for the support that we have, and a shout out to our, our own representative, uh, Representative Bergman. He was a early supporter and has we been We didn't have to convince him when we were we out did, there. We that didn't. Was nice. he, was, he, was, he was all on. So we are now at 260 co-sponsors in the House. Uh, and it sounds like, oh, well, if you got to 260, 30 more shouldn't be hard. Was that the impression that you got when we were there? Everyone is a victory. Everyone is a huge <laughs> win. If yes. we can get one more, you know, it's, it's huge. And and like Rachel said, a lot of it is is trying to get staff to understand the value of this legislation so that they will make a recommendation to their boss, the, the, the elected official, as to what position to take. The elected officials feel lots of different pieces of legislation on a daily basis, and having staff fully understand these issues is critically important. Uh, and so some of our time was, was really getting staff to better understand mm-hmm. what co-ops do and the importance of this legislation. Yep. So on, on the Senate side, we also have several co-sponsors and on the Michigan side of that uh, Cinder Peters is, is, an, is a, was a co-sponsor of the bill which we're very grateful for we had the opportunity to sit down with Senator Stabenow's staff and she is um, conceptually in support of the fix she's not going to sign on as a co-sponsor but I think it's important to keep her reasoning in mind because it's one of the other avenues that could potentially get us a fix which is she would like to see a tax package and she would is m- supportive of having this included in a tax package, but rather than having a bunch of little tax fixes go through independently, she's really looking for a a full tax package. What do you think the over-under is on a tax package? Yeah, not very good. Not very good. Yeah, Yeah. I I think we're probably more apt to see this included in in a different type of package. (laughs) It might be a year-end spending bill. It might be an extension of the current year spending. It might be tax extenders. We can talk a little bit about that, too. That was another issue we talked about. But uh, I don't know that we'll see a tax bill. Maybe what was talked about at one point was a tax 2.0, sort Mm -hmm. of take what they did in 2017 and go farther with it. I don't think we'll see that. But hopefully we'll see some other vehicle moving through Congress. And hopefully this will be a must-include. So if we can get this particular provision to be a must-include in anything that does move, that's good for the communities we serve. And, and what we're trying to do, it's, it's nothing really new. Anytime a major tax bill is passed and you go back to Reagan's Tax Act and Obama's and everything, there's always tweaks that have to be made after the, the bill is signed because there's unforeseen circumstances or, mm-hmm. or consequences that they didn't think about, and this is one of them. So this is going on all the time, and so we hope that by being there and pointing these things out that we'll have an impact. I'm done changing that. So. And perhaps if we have uh, a couple of these bills all trying to get to 290, they can make a mini tax package there out of go. all these things <laughs> yes. that need to be done. So. <laughs> well, since you brought it up, I, I was going to talk about the SECURE Act next, but let's talk really quick about the tax extenders. So we did have the opportunity to, to sit down, uh, oftentimes with a Republican delegation, and express our support for tax extenders. Do you want to talk about some of the types of tax extenders we were talking to them about? Yeah, so one of them uh, that we were talking to folks about was about electric vehicles, uh, we have traditionally had a federal tax uh, credit for the purchase of an electric vehicle uh, based on volume of cars sold by a manufacturer. Uh, Some of those volumes now have been met or exceeded, and so the credit has disappeared essentially for some EVs. 
and certainly as our, our membership uh, looks to purchase EVs, we would love to have additional opportunities to receive tax credits on those purchases. And so uh, we'd love to see an extension of, of electric vehicle tax credits at the federal level. And there is a bill right now um, sponsored by Representative Kildee, who is from the Michigan delegation, called the Drive Drive America Forward or Driving Correct. America mm-hmm. Forward. Yes. And what it does is it, the original cap for a manufacturer was 200,000 vehicles, and the credit tax credit was $7,500. It extends that cap by an additional 400,000 and drops the credit down to 7,000 from 7,500. So that was a, a bill that we were reiterating our support for. I don't know that we talked to anyone who I think will sign on, but we did kind of get some, hey, yeah, this isn't this isn't something we would vote against kind of um, feedback from many of the... Yeah, and we tried right. to provide the feedback also. So, you know, here we are on the ground knowing what our members are looking to do or are doing. And what we've seen is a lot of the early adopters uh, were, were not necessarily doing it because of the tax credit. They were purchasing EVs maybe for a philosophical reason or because they wanted to be an early adopter. But as we move forward with the development of EV technologies, I think we're really starting to see more and more of our general membership interested in these vehicles. And the tax credit really can make a big deal or, or have a big impact on their decision or their ability to, to make that purchase. So we were pitching the concept that this uh, extension is, is not so much about, you know, do you believe that EVs are, are going to be you know ubiquitous here in a year or two or three or ten, but really about accessibility. Like, do you want your constituents, our members, to uh, have as many options available to them as possible to uh, experience this type of technology. And that's really important for us as a co-op. Uh, EVs are, are uh, going to be a, a bigger and bigger part of our lives going forward. There's no question about that. The amount of money that the auto companies are, are throwing at the technology is amazing right now. And as, as a co-op member, as Gabe said, we, we want to have all those options on the table. And as a co-op ourselves, as a distribution co-op, we have to be prepared for that because it could uh, increase demand uh, dramatically and we have to have the infrastructure and stay ahead of the curve uh, on, this, on this new technology as it manifests itself in the coming years. We like to use an example. Uh, one of our recent annual meetings, uh, we had more questions fielded about the electric vehicle in our parking lot than we did about the board of directors. So uh, <laughs> if it's any indication about our membership's interest in the issue and in the EVs, I think that's yeah. very pertinent. So we, we're, we're coming up on our time limit, but I do want to talk about another bill that we discussed. It's it's pretty far along in the process, but it is an important one for us. It's called the SECURE Act. It uh, I'm not even going to remember what the acronym is, but it has something to do with communities and retirement. But it's essentially this kind of large retirement reform bill that has a lot of different provisions in it, all aimed at increasing access to tax advantage accounts for, um, for people to invest in as they prepare for retirement. But one of the, the pieces that is included in it is a piece of... Uh, pension legislation we have been working for for a very long time as co-ops. There's this entity called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is essentially like the insurer of pensions. Mm -hmm. If someone goes under, PBGC will come in and um, take care of their pensions. Co-ops are a part of what's called a multiple employer pension plan. There are 880 co-ops in the country that all participate together in the same defined benefit plan that covers more than 56,000 employees. It is over 90% funded, and it is essentially backed up by all 880 of those co-ops. So if one co-op were to go under, it wouldn't really matter because the rest mm-hmm. of the co-ops ultimately guarantee that pension. 
but we pay the same rates as a single employer pension program pays. So we're, we're paying rates as if, as if our risk is the same as a single employer pension when our risk is much lower than a single employer pension. The SECURE Act has a rate relief provision in it that allows our premiums to come down still pretty high, to be honest, comparative to our risk, but, but more comparable to our risk than what they are now. If this act were to pass, it would save co-ops in the, across the country $30 million a year and in Michigan, a million dollars a year. So it has significant implications for us because, again, all of our savings get passed on directly to our membership. Uh, the act passed the House in May overwhelmingly, like 417 to 3. So the hope was that they could, and you mentioned this earlier about how limited there is for time to introduce things on the floor right now. Mm-hmm. The hope was that they could use a loophole known as unanimous consent in the Senate. If they had unanimous support, essentially, for this bill, they could move it without having to take up time on the floor. 97 people <laughs> are currently in a position of consent, but we have three holdouts. Um, none from Michigan. Back, none from Michigan. <laughs> yep. Three three GOP uh, holdouts. And, and so that was another thing we were just really trying to push our, our senators on, especially to see if there's any thing they can do to help us get that done. And it's something we still continue to care deeply about. I don't know if it's going to happen. Well, I, I'm a little more optimistic. I think, you know, again, we talked early on about all the distractions or other things that are going on out in D.C. right now. And I do think that this is something that very easily could sneak through and all of a sudden pass. We would wake up and uh, they would have acted on it. And all it has to do is a couple of senators release a hold, which is a very easy thing to do. They just tell the leadership, we, we're okay with this, and it passes. So okay. the, the, the barrier is pretty low. We'll see. We'll and, see. And, and it should be noted, too, that the three senators that are holding out, the reason they're holding out is not because of the bill itself, but because they have some pet projects that they want to see completed or done, mm-hmm. and they're kind of using that as a bartering chip. And the, and the co-ops are certainly not the only entity paying close attention to this particular piece of legislation. And one thing I have read several places is, unlike some of the other, for example, the Rural Act, this is a bill that there's some thought that it could even parts of it could get done in 2020 if it can't get done in 2019. Obviously, we'd like to see it get done in 2019. We're so close, mm-hmm. uh, but but that's that was another one that we were talking about, and we'll continue to um, update our membership on as as the time comes. So we don't have much time left. We could talk about marijuana too if you want, Rachel. We we could, but unfortunately okay. for you, that's yeah, going to have to be another right. podcast. I'm gonna I'm gonna table that one. Uh, but we, I, but I, but thank you for bringing it up, Gabe. We did also follow up on some concerns we had about um, marijuana and commerce laws. Banking legislation that uh, has an opportunity to pass the Senate that would uh, free up some opportunity for us to take in money that's not cash in black black suitcases yeah. for marijuana operations. Help to make it a little safer for anyone who serves a legal grow operation to accept payment from them for services rendered, which in our case is electricity. And, and re- real quickly, the reason. We as a co-op are concerned about that, as uh, for our listeners that don't know, uh, the uh, marijuana plants and the, the growing of them uh, uses tremendous amounts of energy. And so, as Gabe said, they pay their bills in cash, and we'd like to eliminate that. Sometimes in Briggs trucks. I mean, it's it's yeah. really like nuts. So, yeah, we need we need to fix that. And, and actually, we'll, we might, I think it'd be nice to just do a podcast on some of the challenges and opportunities that the legalization of marijuana brings to the electric sector. So we will... We'll push that into that podcast. So we clearly had a 
big important trip to DC where we did a lot of good work before we do fun facts. Does anybody have any last thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to make mention for those listeners that are interested in learning more about these bills or finding out how many more co-sponsors we might be getting. Uh, if you go to congress.gov, uh, it is a great resource for everybody. And if you type in HR 2147, HR 2147, that is the Rural Act. And you can go to congress.gov, type in HR 2147, and you can pull up all the co-sponsors for Michigan. If you Google America's Electric Cooperative, the top website that comes up is our national organization, and they're also putting regular updates there as well. And don't be surprised if this is not the last time you hear from us about it. We're going to try and really um, get, get some more word out and hopefully build some momentum. Uh, so fun facts, did everyone bring one? It's World Series time. I've got one. Okay. In this era where they pull the pitchers after 110 pitches, uh, they should know uh, Babe Ruth. When he was 21 years old, I think it was maybe even 1921, I can't remember, he pitched a full game, all 14 innings, which is unheard of nowadays. Wow. So, yeah. Rubber arm. They don't make them like they used to. No, they don't. <laughs> uh, this was just our personal fun fact. You know, get to know your director day, I guess we could call this. Sweet. Um, so this summer I uh, raced BMX bikes with my son at the local Grand Traverse County BMX track here at the Fairgrounds. Nice. So I forgot that you did that. For those that are interested, BMX racing. So mine is a World Series-themed one as well. Uh, game six is tomorrow. The Astros are currently up over the Nationals. And actually, when we were in D.C., we we hung out right outside the stadium as they won the game. The Nationals won the game that sent them to, uh, to the World Series. But anyway, they're headed back to Houston. And here's my World Series fun fact. The average cost for a 30-second commercial during the World Series is $500,000. Comparatively, the average cost for a 30-second spot in the Super Bowl is $5.25 million. <laughs> so if that gives you any indication of the value, World Series versus Super Bowl. Uh, I also read in the paper today that the average length of a game is now over four hours, pushing the ends of most games past midnight, which is causing significant downward pressure on TV viewership. Mm, so I'm thinking next year we could pick up a 30-second spot in the World Series for mm. a steal. So we're going to... Yeah, thank nice. you. Yeah, there's, there's probably some downward pressure on worker productivity the next day, too. One would think, yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, so thank you guys very much for two things. One, for joining me on the podcast and helping us talk to our listeners about these issues and the work we did in D.C. But more importantly, thank you for taking the time to travel to D.C. on behalf of the members you represent and have these conversations with our legislators because I do believe it makes a big difference. It was a great experience for me. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks.